This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I discuss how to create and use rules that support the aesthetic of a homebrew setting. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Hello, John. How's it going? And uh, yeah, you told me that you were uh interested in uh having a bit of a chat today not with like a specific topic i guess like you just uh, you know we're just thinking like we're gonna we're gonna talk about this uh but we haven't like really necessarily prepared much on it it's just like our general thoughts and maybe like what's going on in our world uh as dungeon masters yeah, so it does kind of feed in from the topic we did last week, which was on cultivating precision with your game rulings. Um, one, Just to kind of recap a little bit, last week I was just scrolling through Facebook and Reddit as I do. And one of the things that I noticed as a pattern from just having lurked in the community for a few years is oftentimes there will be posts that generally go, hey, I'm a new DM, any advice? And in general, there's a lot of the same advice over and over again, like, you know, relax, just have fun. Um, It's okay to make mistakes. A lot of advice that's not very actionable. So yes, those are all great sentiments. Those are great outcomes of having a relaxed, fun game. And yeah, we all mess up from time to time. So not dwelling on our mistakes. But none of those things are like active things that somebody can practice. So, for example, you said it best, Ian, if you have someone that's not calm, telling them calm down is not going to make them go, oh, yes, of course, I was being ridiculous. (laughs) Whereas one thing that I usually see that I actually disagree with is usually some sentiment of you don't need to know the rules, like don't worry about memorizing the rule book. And while I, I agree with the sentiment of that statement of, you don't need to memorize the rules to begin DMing. You don't need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the game's mechanics in order to be an effective dungeon master. I do think that that is the one actionable thing that you can pay attention to and develop as a new DM, which is understanding the game's mechanics in the context of the gameplay experience. When you make a mistake with that ruling, making sure to do your research so that you have a better understanding and you're more likely to make a a better call that you're more proud of the next time. And once you have a sufficient understanding, that's where you can start to branch out and do things like house rules and homebrew and all the fun stuff that most people want to usually jump right into when really I think that first you have to cultivate your foundation before you start jumping into all of that stuff. Now, that being said, the downside to using the rules as written is a lot of them are silly. And 
relying too much on the dice for your outcomes can lead to ludicrous results. The example I was I was explaining this to my mom and my sister because they're also avid D&D players in my circle is, you know, if you're rolling for everything, like let's say it's like I want to pick up this water bottle, roll a check. Like now all of a sudden it's like I got a two. Ah, you know, you look like one of those helpless people from like a TV ad where it's like, do you have a problem with toothpaste? And it shows someone trying to squeeze a tube and they spray the toothpaste all over themselves. A lot of times the same players that are very what I would call simulationist in their approach where they really want to adhere strictly to the rules of the game and the outcome of the dice are also ones that will tend to want a more serious game. And unfortunately, a lot of times those two desires start conflicting with each other because the dice end up being so ridiculous. So to bridge it to our actual point today, what we're going to be talking about is world building and how you can create homebrew rules or utilize variant rules from all of 5th edition's various resources to support the custom game world that you want to play in. So, you know, Ian, both of us have been really exploring custom settings. Uh, my custom setting right now is called Giris, which is the name of a, a continent. I believe Ian's homebrew campaign, Corsara, is also the name of a continent. So, Ian, uh, I guess I'll kick it back over to you if you want to talk about where you started with Corsara and what really got you excited about its core themes and imagery and history and all that fun stuff. I started with Corsara originally thinking just, I want a world of my own. Uh, you know, as many DMs do. I didn't really know exactly the details I was looking to incorporate into that world yet. I just knew that, you know, I was starting to embrace my superpower as a DM, which is brainstorming uh, and trying to fit all of my uh, interesting ideas about like characters or you know, lore, history, you know, spinning the Faerunian lore around on its head to make it my own. Like all, all this stuff, I was thinking, you know, I, I kind of need my own space for this. So I thought I'll build my own world. And actually, the first thing I did was I drew a map. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, it's kind of funny because I always talk about like, oh, when you're world building, you know, you can start with a village, but you could also start with like a continent and like create some like countries and think about like the macro, like really like big, like high level macro stuff where it's like, you know, this country has all the the good food and this country has all the like raw materials and stuff. So you know, thinking about it like that. But really what I started with was drawing that first map. And it was a rough draft. Um, I I don't know. I just drew it. it there wasn't really any, like, <laughs> idea of, like, what should a continent look like? Uh, because our real-world continents look like nonsense. So, <laughs> you know, why not start with nonsense? And then I divided it up uh, by what I imagined at the time would be rivers. And then I decided we're probably better off as, like, border lines. Um, and then I was like, well, what what are these countries? And what's the geography like? And I said, okay, so maybe up north, you know, I know about northern places. I lived in Sweden. There's snow. 
So I put some snow there. Uh, and I've been to Costa Rica. So in the south, you know, so there's there in the south, it's usually a little bit more tropical. And then in the middle, I was like, uh, arid, you know, maybe arid, maybe a little bit volcanic somewhere. And that's how I kind of started with Corsair as a whole. Um, but in terms of like, you know, lore and history and things like that, I actually started with like the mechanics that I was interested in seeing played with in my world. Like with when I was starting to play Gears with you and I read through the uh, reference document at the time, um, I noticed, oh, there's all these all these cool like rules and things like these ideas that he has that he wants to see in play like like sunder mechanics and called shots and stuff like that and even though some of these rules we never really got around to using too much of uh i i was intrigued and i was like you know it's a shame we never really use sunder that much i want to use sunder and even though in the first session of Corsara i didn't use any sunder stuff I do plan to use it for future sessions. Like my NPCs will know how to break a weapon uh, or armor or something like that. Um, and uh, alchemy, you know, like potions and things. I don't want to go into like a full like crafting system kind of thing. Um, I'm more interested in the potions themselves rather than making them. If a player eventually comes to me and says, hey, I want to make this, I'll say, okay, you know, you need an herbalist kit that's pretty much it you know take some time to do it but the thing that really interested me was potion toxicity and i noticed that potion toxicity just doesn't come up very much especially because we don't have any potions really uh in gears at least not that i know of and i thought why not make corsara more dependent on alchemy uh and even though they've got traditional magic and stuff like that to rely on, why not make them more dependent on alchemy? And then I started thinking about what that would mean for the world. And like, I started thinking, well, I kind of want this like, you know, magic punk kind of thing where it's like, uh, not, not cyberpunk, but like steampunk kind of esque world, kind of like you have in gears too. You know, I just think it's such a unique setting that is still fresh and ready to be explored, uh, you know, outside of the, the high fantasy. So I don't want to go on too long about Corsara because I, you know, like I said, my superpower is brainstorming. And with that comes tangents upon tangents upon tangents. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to talk too much more about it, but basically the idea was I started with I started with the the world itself, like the geography. And then I said, what do I want to see in that world? What What is interesting to me that I haven't seen before? Uh, and how am I going to make that work? And, you know, part of what we're talking about is creating rules for your custom world today. Um, not to spoil it, but uh that was that was definitely part of my creation process as a DM. Yeah, well, and what I think is interesting is you've mentioned before in our past episodes that you like it as like a DM and a player. And I, I agree with this when the DM is kind of like creating the rough outline and then the players start to color inside the lines. And that's the color is really what makes it pop. So, for example, like for Gyrus, like you mentioned, you played Gyrus before developing Corsara. Gyrus has 
a few different countries that have some general national identities. So one of the countries is kind of like the the scholarly nation. So if you want to learn magic or like more cultured things, you go over there. Uh, one of them is more an, of an industrial nation. So if you want to be an entrepreneur or set out on your own, you know, I've got big dreams for New York kind of thing. You go to that country. But beyond those very broad national identities, the players are the ones that color in the inside the line, so to speak, by creating cities and NPCs and personalities. And from that, as the DM, I can create scenarios that will now engage them. And even starting with something like, say, the rules, it's really interesting that you first started literally by creating the lines to color inside of developing the countries then looking at the kind of rules that you wanted to play by and let that inform your history. One of the things uh, we've both mentioned before was world building advice from Cody from Taking 20, which is when you set out to world build, you want to start with what your gameplay is going to be. So a lot of DMs start with the aesthetic of their world. We both tend to have similar worlds in that they're kind of this late 1800s, early 1900s, turn of the century style of technology and culture, which has its own very interesting gameplay implications, which make, uh, again, like you said, it makes them fresh settings to explore in terms of D&D and what kind of game mechanics you choose to include or exclude is going to change the tone of the story that you're telling. And it's when the aesthetic and the game mechanics match, you get something powerful. So I just know a lot of times game masters will get very excited to develop a custom setting, but if they don't have the mechanics to support it, the aesthetic starts to fall shallow. Uh, one of the conversations I actually had earlier today was someone mentioned uh, a darker game a dark storyline. And I had participated in a dark campaign, but was it really dark? Because part of a dark campaign is that, you know, your character, you as the player should be afraid that your character can be injured or could be killed. And when I had played the game, that was certainly the pitch and that was the descriptive tone. But when it came to the actual mechanics, it was standard D&D. Like, I was never sitting there wondering if my player character was going to bite the dust this session or not. For the most part, after level one, I was pretty confident that my character wasn't in quote-unquote real danger. That the DM was definitely kind of pulling back a little bit on the encounters to make sure that they weren't going to be overly difficult. And that... In that way, the aesthetic didn't necessarily match the mechanics. So it was a dark description, but without fatal mechanics to really drive that point home. In choosing a lot of the custom rules for Gearus, I wanted to play a more grounded game. Not necessarily something super crunchy, but something that was going to aid the cinematics of the game. So one of the rules I love that we implemented is facing because we both tend to like really descriptive combat, but then 
you can end up with combats without facing where it's like, ah, my character is going to try to distract them. But then there's nothing in the game to warrant that distraction. Whereas facing, actually marking and keeping track the direction of each of the participants in combat, now a distraction is a viable combat tactic because if you can position your character behind your target, now you get advantage on your attack roll. And that allows for things like sneak attack. You get to crit more often. You get to hit more often. So your damage gets boosted significantly. So I love facing because it's just like a little example of how, yeah, it's a little bit more of a pain to track the little arrow of where your guy is facing. And it really helps from a gameplay perspective, create a foundation that's easy to create descriptive narratives off of. What I wrote down was that, you know, a grounded game creates the opportunity for your players to make interesting choices. So you don't have to like rely on a player having like an abundance of creativity to, uh, you know, supplement the agency you're providing them with. Right. I think Matt Colville has actually talked about this uh, in a lot of his videos where he says, you know, back when he was starting, people were expected to come up with their own goals, right? And the DM would be there to facilitate that opportunity for them to, you know, create their own base or become a god, kill a god, kill a monarch, you know, things like that. If this was the player's goal, it was the DM's responsibility to write the story around the goal that they that the player was, you know, interested in. Um, but today people are less um I, I wouldn't say they're less active as players, but like they're less proactive in terms of their character's specific goals outside of the plot that the DM has laid out for them. So I was thinking that a good way to look at this was that if you're if you as the DM want your players to have their own goals and make interesting choices and things like that, then you have to be the D, you know, it's your job as the DM to supply them with. Uh, the opportunity to do that through interesting mechanics and rules and uh, ways to figure out how they're going to accomplish these goals. And actually, that was what his video was about today, which was, um, you know, it should be easy for players to access like the lore of your world to uh, solve a problem. But the solution shouldn't be easy, even though the information is easily accessible. Well, and also the information, getting it should be fun, that players will do things that are hard and fun over things that are easy and boring. Yeah, to directly quote from Matt Colville there. I strive to defend Nui Zatalos and live up to my role as a spiritual leader. I journey to increase my knowledge of the cusp and cosmos. It has been prophesied that there is destiny in my blood. I fight for the honor of the name Steadyhand and the great kingdom of Firdearth. I wanted to find my true place in the world. I will protect my home and family at all costs. A young ruler's grasp for power threatens an already fractured world. Meet the heroes in Arc 2 of Advantage, a 5th edition D&D audio drama. Find us on all podcast apps. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's actually where 
a lot of mechanics I implemented for my world, they came from that question of, is this going to be a fun choice for my players to make? Which is why when you mentioned things like potion toxicity and sunder, those ended up being mechanics that never really got used. Potion toxicity in particular was a homebrew rule I created after playing a lot of Witcher. And I liked the groundedness of the fact that potions are magical, but what is the side effect of consuming them? And potions haven't come up because we have players that are really good at building support characters that make consumable items less needed. And the other part is just that our style of gameplay doesn't really warrant potions. Like potions are great for if you're doing long dungeon crawls or there are many, many combat encounters in your adventuring day. And that's not what any of the players that are in our group are interested in. Now, potions are something that I allow players to take with them on their adventures, but there's just an understanding that there aren't many combat encounters per session and players get to long rest and recharge between sessions. But other things like the magic item crafting system, you know, that we both kind of use, that was something my players really got hooked on because it gave them very clear, fun choices to make in between sessions. And part of the anticipation of moving to the next session was how can I craft my magic items to not only have the most fun, but also create an interesting and effective character. So I do think that when we talk about gameplay, that can be a very broad term for people. Really what you're looking at are the choices that your players are going to be making for their characters. And I mentioned it in the last episode, but I want to mention it again. You know you have good homebrew if it's adding viable choices to your game. You know that your homebrew has work to do or needs massaging if first your players don't want to select it or if it's so good it's reducing the number of viable choices for your players to pick. A lot of times when I see a DM get really excited about a custom subclass my concern is usually it's way too powerful. This subclass is so good why would any of the other players pick not this subclass that's it's just so amazing and to me overpowered mechanics are almost more dangerous than underpowered mechanics yeah actually i i think that's a really important thing that a lot of dms uh, new dms particularly uh should recognize that you know the system is built a certain way and when you start you know homebrewing custom ruling or tinkering with the system you're, you know, you're going to start having uh, significant effects because everything is built with everything else in mind, right? Although some things clearly slip through the cracks. Uh, it's it's important to recognize that whatever you decide to use in your custom world is going to have a significant impact on not only the gameplay, but also on the system as a whole. Like if you, for example, don't realize that there is already a rule for the thing you're trying to do, then you might notice that it plays kind of weird with, you know, the raw as it is. Um, and 
I've I've seen that myself when I have DM'd and I have tried to use essentially the effects of the spell magic jar against players. And I think that that is a very debilitating effect. And I looked at magic jar and I was like, this is this is really strong. I'm concerned. And this was in the middle of combat. And I was like, this, I think my players are going to TPK if I allow this to happen because they won't be able to use any of their abilities and there doesn't look like there is a save against this. And I'm not sure why they, whoever made this, thought it was a good idea. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, then I was like, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to implement a save, right? So that would, that was a custom rule in that moment or a homebrew choice, basically, I would say. Uh, and then uh, the whole thing fell apart <laughs> with the, just by adding a little save. Yeah, the whole thing fell apart. The combat was anticlimactic and they slaughtered the uh, BBEG. So uh, I think that even though that's like a very small kind of like secluded example, uh, it shows that there is a significant uh, risk to using custom rules without knowing or fully understanding the raw as a whole. And, I, and I've said this before in other podcasts, but it, I think it warrants uh, mentioning again. You know, we could talk forever about just game mechanics and how they support a world's aesthetic, but I'd like to broaden the term even more because if we think about gameplay as the choices that your players are making, a lot of times when we talk about gameplay, People get stuck at the rules that are mechanical in nature. So combat rules, if it's an action or a bonus action or how two weapon fighting should be handled. And especially when you broaden it to what kind of choices do I want my players to be making in the world that I'm building for them. Now, that's where you're looking at choices in terms of social interaction and travel as well. And I am going to distinguish travel from exploration. I know exploration is the third pillar of play. To me, exploration is also when you're solving puzzles, when you're exploring and discovering things that are new. Travel tends to be the thing that gets talked about a lot in exploration because it's how do I, in a sensical but well-paced way, bring my players to the setting of the story and i i've messed it up lots of times i've seen dms mess it up lots of times just as a quick aside i do like the door of the explorer method where basically you create three stops that you describe so it's like wow we're going to go over the bridge and then you create a scene for that and then it's like oh now we're going to go through the forest and you create a scene for that so you you almost break up travel into three scenes and then you can say you know it takes a month to travel but these were the three big things you saw on the way to make it seem like time is passing but also not just kind of skip over travel um but even that that's a choice of what your table values and what part of your world you're going to value. So one of the reasons I like this, you know, steampunk magic punk aesthetic is because it allows players to travel between locations very, very quickly in a way that you don't now have to go out of your way to justify as a dungeon master. One of the things I saw when 
I would play in games that were largely quote unquote medieval fantasy because D&D isn't really medieval fantasy. It's more like a Western with knights in armor. What would happen is we would spend a lot of the early levels taking months or weeks or the long spans of time to travel from place to place. And eventually a DM would get tired of that and just be like, oh, you just teleport there. And now you're taking this maybe grounded, low magic setting and starting to have to lean upon the high magic aspects of D&D in order to keep the gameplay from stalling out. So something I like about both our settings is that there are trains. So you just hop on a train and it might take a day to cross the continent or whatever, but that's all it takes. Like it's it's a very quick way to be like, oh, I want to go to the, the Royal Library, hop on a train. Now I need to go talk to this person in the military academy, hop on another train. So your players are able to make all of these different choices based on the way the world is set up and not even necessarily the game mechanics of what does it mean to travel on a train? How much do tickets cost? But just the idea that the choices your players are making, you're bringing their attention to a detail in your setting. Th this also speaks to Matt Colville's video. That's probably where I got the inspiration for this whole thing. The lore you're trying to deliver to your players should be directly involved in the decisions that they're making for the campaign. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, I think I, I agree. I think Matt Colville's video today really had a, you know, formative influence on on this podcast. I do think I do think the big insight that came away for for me tonight um, is that, first of all, when you talk about gameplay, you're talking about the choices your players are making. Like yeah. I, I, I might have I, I might have said that sometime earlier, like before this, but like just the idea that. Oh, and lore is fun. That's the other thing. If your players don't like your lore, it's not fun. So <laughs> like, I think I think that's the big because. You know, I, I don't I, I don't want to toot my own horn. And it seems like the people that are having the most fun with Gearus are like, lore is fun. And yeah. I I don't know the, like you can like the people who don't feel that way are also like aren't bored by the lore. The but the most fun part is the lore. But that's not because I said you have to like the lore. It's just the lore. What For whatever reason in this in this campaign, the lore is like fun. So I, I don't even know how the hard part it's, is I don't know how I did it. So I'm trying to deconstruct it to try to figure it out. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, with that, like kind of a perspective on it, it's a little bit easier to see where you're coming from. That's interesting. Basically, what you're asking is like what got my players interested in my lore? Like right. why? Why this? Why this game? Like why? Yeah. Why not other games? <laughs> Another way to put that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's kind of what we said there that if the lore is relevant to the player's goals, they're always going to find it interesting. Or rather, as long as it's fun and it's relevant to the player's goals. Because, you know, that's part of the thing is we're making up, you know, some of this some of this lore is lore we know, right? Like the players players might not know it, but the characters do, right? It's kind of like where we're coming back to that like general knowledge thing when we were talking about that on DMST, like how there's like 
personal knowledge, general knowledge, and like unknown knowledge or something. It kind of reminds me of that. It does. And you know, I wonder how much of it is the fun of not necessarily discovering more about the world's lore, but discovering what your character knows about the the world's lore. So your care, you know, your character knows a lot more than you do about this world because they've lived in it for however old they are. So that's how you make it personal is that they're discovering more about their character themselves than they are necessarily about the thing that you made for them that you're really interested in. Yeah, it's like it's almost like front story in a way. It's not just about discovering what your character already knows. It's also about discovering how what your character knows impacts your your character's worldview. I think that's what it is. I think that's what it comes down to here is your character has a certain worldview. And when you uncover lore as a player, you learn more about how your character is existing in the world as it currently stands. Uh, Thinking back, the first player to start in betweens was Stephanie from Borrowing Brilliance with Zoe. And when she first brought Zoe to the table, it was a very not developed character. I think what she told me is Aladdin type street rat is all she said. And so as a DM, I, you know, every other player, I'd really sat down and been like, you need to tell me your goal and your regrets and like these questions to try to create in-depth characters before we even got started. And yet hers ended up being the most fleshed out, even though there was the least to go off of to begin with. And from what she's told me anyway, part of it was just trust. She just trusted me personally. She trusted me as a DM. How do you measure trust? I think there are some action steps you can take, like being respectful at the table, letting empathy factor into the decisions that you make and the tone that you have with your players. But that also brings into, to me, when I give my players lore, that's now offering them a new choice. I wonder how many dungeon masters have trouble with their players engaging with their lore because the way that their players are receiving it is that lore means less choices. The more fleshed out the world is, the more locked in their characters have to be. If you're trying to play Faerun and it means being a wood elf means this, being a sun elf means this, this is your culture, so this is who your character has to be. The more detailed your lore is, that actually means there are less choices. I can say as a DM, that's not how it works in my world, so there's less choices. I wonder, no matter how the actual information is framed, if you dig down to the core of it, if that's really the primary conflict, if dungeon masters that have trouble with lore, it's because they're implementing it in a way that's taking choices away from their players, not offering their players new choices, which the players may decline. I still have players in Gearus where I offer them some kind of lore thing and they decline to follow up on it. I don't judge them for that decision. That's not what they're there for. And I know that the players that tend to really want to dig in and dive in, sink their teeth into it. I think it's because they see lore as an opportunity to make other interesting choices to discover more about their characters. 
Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Did you know that there are other tabletop games than Dungeons and Dragons? Well, my name is Gavin, and I'm the host of Playing Out of Character, an actual play podcast that showcases different indie game systems. We play all these indie tabletops using goofs and spooks to tell our stories. Arc 1 features an improvisational take on Urban Shadows. Next up is Shadows of the Demon Lord. If that piques your interest, look for Playing Out of Character, a Darkmoor podcast show on your favorite podcatcher.